So the Bible doesn't condemn all war. And here's uh, some of the examples just to show you real briefly. Man is at war with God ever since the fall. At enmity with God is the technical term for it. And as a result, man is at war with one another on an individual level, on a national level, etc. This is um, a reality of the curse, a reality of the fall of the world we live in. There is warfare. There are Hitlers and there are tyrants and there are evil, evil people. On account of sin, the Bible declares that there is a time to kill, Ecclesiastes 3.3. 3. This is not ideal. This is not um, what it will be like in the new heavens and the new earth's full consummation. But on account of sin and on account of the advance of the kingdom and the struggle between the kingdom of sin and the kingdom of, of light, there is warfare and there is killing. Abraham was honored for his war, Genesis 14, 20. Moses was a faithful warrior, Exodus 17, 15. The Lord is described as a warrior. You know this. You've probably sung this in church before. The Lord is a warrior. All right, y'all know that song? I think it's a typical non-denominational song. I can't remember the tune right now, but the Lord is described as a warrior. Exodus 15, 3, Revelation 19, 11. The Lord taught David to make war, Psalm 144, 1 and 2. At no point in any of the interactions with the soldiers of Rome, John, Jesus, Paul, Peter, at no point do they ever tell them, repent and, and leave the army. What does John tell the soldiers when they come out to be baptized? He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Well, what sort of fruit is in keeping with repentance? How shall we then live? And what was the answer? <clears throat> Yeah, be content with your wages. Stop extorting people. Stop intimidating and, and stealing. Yeah, he, he doesn't say, if you're truly repentant and you're going to prepare your life and your heart for the coming of the kingdom, quit being a soldier. Lay down your swords. Jesus, in fact, even instructs his disciples to sell some clothing, sell some articles so that they can get a sword. Jesus uses war as a parable, Luke 14. In the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 24, well, 32 through 34, commemorates faithful war. Let's look that passage up. We don't have time to look up all of these, but let's look up Hebrews 11. And uh, I'll look it up for us here. And by the way, I said all of these Bible verses so that the people on the recording can do their homework if they'd like. Just so you all know. Hebrews 11, anybody have it? I'm struggling here. Go ahead, Brother Henry. You got it? And what more shall I see? But time would, time would fail me to tell Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, with foreign armies to fight. There you go. So they had faith, and that's why they're in the hall of faith. That's the nickname for Hebrews 11. And what was the fruit of that faith? All good faith works, right? How did their faith work itself out? Warfare. 
in their particular callings, in their particular case. So we can see, I think, quite clearly that you cannot make a, a biblical case that war is, across the board, evil. That Christians should never engage in violence, that Christians should never kill. The only way you make that case is if you pull um, a verse here or a verse there and build an entire theology on it. The Bible does not teach any form of pacifism. Okay? So far, so good. So that's just sort of the basics. But the Bible does not condemn... While the Bible doesn't condemn all war, the Bible does not condone all war either. There's some parameters. I I think um, the United States recently bombed Syria for the hundredth time. Um, Didn't that happen the last couple of weeks? I'm sure there's bombings and CIA and, you know... We've been bombing Iraq for 30 years. I'm sure there's CIA operations and various special forces operations all over the world, right? We have bases all over the world. We have bases in Germany and bases in Afghanistan. Um, We are engaged in quite a bit of war. War is going on all over the world. But the Bible lays out what sorts of war are just and what sorts of war are unjust. And I'm going to kind of lay out the parameters for this. For war to be just, first and foremost, it needs to be done out of self-defense. Self-defense war is just war. And we can look up a a few passages here, but I think the uh, primary one, Deuteronomy 28, verse 7. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way. And flee before you seven ways. You see, you have enemies rising up against a nation. This is corporate. This is not just one neighbor versus another neighbor. But they have enemies. Israel had enemies. Enemies that would raid and pillage and plunder and engage in all manner of warfare across their borders. And and God punished those enemies very often through Israel's um, warfare. Through men like Gideon and Samson. Exodus 22, verse 2 is another one, 21, 12. War should be self-defense. Now, what do you think about the wars that are going on in our world? Would we consider those done out of self-defense? I'm not sure, honestly. I'm not sure. Um, Could you imagine a uh, scenario in which terrorists bombed a large portion of a city, and we went and we enacted retribution to punish them, to execute justice, and to make sure they don't continue to do that sort of behavior. Would that be okay, according to this? Yeah, it would be. That's right. You know, the thing about war today is society works in of all that doesn't love your neighbor. So in consequence, the same we have now is the best defense is a good offense. Yes. So, but we, but we can't, yeah, and that's what I'm saying is that we cannot justify violence unless it is first and foremost done out of self-defense. Um, we, war, for example, war for um, pillaging and plundering and stealing the resources of another country is, yeah, it's just pirates under another name. You're not allowed to, to break into your neighbor's house and take their possessions. You have to respect your own borders. And if you believe in borders... The most important thing about borders is that's where the government's jurisdiction ends, ideally, right? That's one of the reasons why I'm against, in principle, a massive wall across our entire country, because I might want to leave, right? 
I might want to go to a place where the United States government does not have jurisdiction. But unfortunately, most of the people in our government are globalists, I would say. And they don't necessarily believe in boundaries and jurisdictions and prerogatives for nations. They are pursuing a global government. And so they engage in warfare for those particular ends. That, I would say, is generally speaking unjust. It needs to be done out of self-defense. War should be a last resort. What are, sort of, what are the sort of things we could do before we engage in war? On an individual level, before we sue our neighbor or you know, before they perhaps get shot in our living room in the middle of the night? What are some of the things that we could do before we engage in violence or warfare? Someone said something up here? Yeah, peace talks, negotiations, reconcile, pay retribution, pay tribute. As the, the enemies of Israel, when Israel was engaged in uh, enacting justice and retribution for the crimes and the sins that have been done against them, God said to them, before you conquer a city, offer to it peace terms. You can perhaps negotiate so that they pay tribute to pay for all the evil that they have done. They've blown up half your city. They've burned down these buildings. They've killed these many men. Enact peace treaties where they pay you uh, reparations or restitution rather than destroying their entire city. Let war be a last resort. Try to strive for peace if at all possible. Deuteronomy 20.10, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. The same thing would go on an individual level before you sue someone or before you perhaps in self-defense have to take someone's life or before any sort of violent or, or you know, sort of activity. You want to do everything you possibly can for peace. And even warfare itself is for the purpose of peace, as we're going to see. That's why Augustine said, you know, the purpose of peace is, you know, the purpose of war is to make peace. Another principle of just war is that it's um, to be within your jurisdiction. Jude, didn't y'all study just war recently in class with Pastor Joe? Does this sound similar? Was it some of this stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Okay. War should be within your jurisdiction. What do I mean by that? I mean, our country does not have jurisdiction over the entire globe. The same way France doesn't have jurisdiction over the whole globe or, or whatever. We have certain jurisdictions which are delineated by our boundaries. You have jurisdiction over your house, your property. A sheriff has jurisdiction over his parish or his county. A governor has jurisdiction over his state. If you don't like what Governor Bell Edwards is doing in Louisiana, you could move. You could just move across the border to Texas or Mississippi. All right? you, could, you could leave their jurisdiction. That, I think, is a biblical principle, that government is to be limited to certain boundaries and jurisdictions. The Bible even says that God established the boundaries for nation states. Paul mentions that in, uh, in the book of Acts when he's talking to the Athenians. He says that in times past, God established nations and set the boundaries and markers for them. That's how far their jurisdiction goes. And when a, when a nation is limited like that, it, it allows for much more freedom. Because you might be slipping through the cracks. Or there might be an injustice being done to you. You can move across the border and have freedom. That's what the pilgrims did, right? That's what many of the Puritans, they tried to make for peace. They tried to reform their church. But when they finally were threatened with death or, or, or the, um, you know, the, they weren't allowed to worship as they wanted to, they eventually moved outside of the borders in the jurisdiction of their persecutor, of the tyrant. 
We, we do not want, and it is not biblical to desire, um, global government where there are no boundaries, where there are no jurisdictions. The, the Bible says that all the nations will bow to Jesus, that Jesus has the inheritance of all the nations, and that means at the very end of history, there's going to be nations. That no, you cannot make any case within Scripture that there's going to be one giant global government. At nowhere does it say that. It actually says at the end of human history, all nations will bow to Jesus Christ, implying that there's still going to be nations at the very end. That's part of limited government, is limiting them geographically, limiting them as to their jurisdictions. And so a nation, if it's going to engage in war and violence, self-defense for the purpose of peace, war is a last resort, and it has to be their jurisdiction, it, it has to be within their prerogatives. We are not allowed to wage war if it's not our prerogative to do so. Gang warfare, vigilante justice are not legitimate. There must be duly sanctioned moral authority. So let's pl- apply this to us individually. If, let's, you know, for sake of argument, Governor Bell Edwards um, unilaterally, without the vote of Congress, without following the... Um, the processes that the Constitution of our state lays out for him just declared a state of emergency across the whole state. He ne- and he really did not make his case to the state that it was an emergency. The statistics did not back up such a declaration. Let's just assume this might have taken place or could potentially take place. Then with that unilateral self-declared power, he then begins to shut down churches he begins to arrest pastors who, who are safety hazards. Right? He creates what we call a, a Department of Public Safety, you know, named after the Department of Public uh, Safety and Perfect Public Health from the French Revolution. You know, they establish a Department of Public Health and Safety, and they go around the state investigating and locking up health hazards. They, they do all of this because they care. Right? Um, now, we would like his jurisdiction to be limited, wouldn't we? We would like to be able to flee across the border, wouldn't we? Now, but what if we can't flee? Throughout all of church history, reformers have done three things to resist tyrants. First, they speak out against it. But if you're not allowed to speak out against it, if everything you say is immediately silenced, or you're thrown in prison for saying it, then what do you do? Then, throughout all of church history, you run. You go across the border to, the, to Geneva, Switzerland. Right? That's what Calvin and, and most of the reformers did. And they established another um, nation state there with a different um, government. But if you can't run and you can't preach against it and you can't speak out, what do you have to do? At some point, there comes a time in which you are cornered and you must say no and you might even have to engage in resistance. And that resistance might even have to be physical resistance. Has that ever happened in the, in the history of Christendom? Yes, of course. Is it going to happen again one day? Of course it's going to. But when you engage in resistance, you do not get to do it just yourself. You don't get to just take it upon yourself. Does the church have the, the sword given to them by Jesus? No. Does the family have the sword of justice given to them by Jesus? No. Family has the rod. The church has... The keys, right? We can talk about that later. But what, who has the sword of justice, the sword of violence, the sword of killing? 
the government. So because of that, the way Christians have taught for hundreds and hundreds of years, when there is tyranny, when they are suppressing the church or the family, throwing pastors in prison, silencing the word of God, and you can't run and you can't flee, you enact the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. That is, you submit to a lesser authority, civil authority, and under their civil authority, you engage in warfare, in self-defense for the purpose of peace within your jurisdiction, no. So that would be a sheriff of a, a particular parish or a county. That might be you know, uh, some other local magistrate. Make sense? Yeah, so like for an example, you might flee to a state where the governor is saying no to the federal troops and the, and the federal money and resisting tyranny in that way. Uh, but, you, but you're not allowed vigilante justice. You're not allowed to just go out yourself and do whatever you want. You're, you're not allowed to uh, engage in guerrilla or gang warfare. You have to always, at all points in time as a Christian, be in submission to God first and foremost, but then if at all possible under God, you're to be in submission to family, church, and state. You see that? So even if you engage in... in um, Warfare or revolution, it wouldn't be revolution, it would be what? Uh, Self-defense, under the authority of a duly appointed civil magistrate who had jurisdiction over that particular region. And our founding fathers understood this. This is why they had you know, the federal government with limited powers, you had state governments with limited powers, and you had counties or parishes with limited powers. But that sort of idea of limited government and separated jurisdictions, which flows out of the Bible, is being dissipated in exchange for federalism and federal government, big, powerful, and strong, and global government, in fact. And so, but here you go. I don't think any of us are going to have to make this decision anytime soon, but it's there. There it is. The right to avenge is the civil authorities, period. Romans 13, 1 through 4. So if you were under threat, if your freedoms were being taken away, if you were forced with, you couldn't speak out, you're having a hard time, um, you know, you can't worship, you can't do that, and you can flee, where would you want to flee to? Somewhere where the civil magistrate worshiped Jesus and abided by his commandments. You see that? Now, I don't think we're anywhere near, we're nowhere near that. Louisiana is actually a great place to live. Um, but, you know, just laying out this biblical framework for you for the future. Or for your kids, maybe. First Peter 2.13 Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil. The Bible teaches submission to civil authority. Now, is the submission to civil authority Absolute. Without qualification. You know, our civil authorities have been telling us to do a lot of things lately. Mm -hmm. Then they tell us the opposite. You know, it just depends on which day you're listening. Um, Depends on which ones you're listening to. You know, it depends on what state they're doing their stump speech in. So, but are we generally speaking to obey our civil authorities? Yes. Um, But it's relativized, isn't it? To our obedience of King Jesus. That's common sense, right? 
So we, we do not have to obey them at, at the expense of obeying Jesus. Do we have to obey our church authorities? Is there anyone out there arguing, you have to obey your church authorities no matter what? No one's arguing that. No one even believes pastors serve a purpose anymore. Right? Is anyone out there saying, you know, the father is the head of the household. You need to submit to him totally across the board. How dare you, you know? You know, aren't we supposed to render unto the father that which is the father's? Right? Is he not in charge of the family? No one is making that argument. Feminism rules. Right? What is an argument that's being made out there? Romans 13. You've got to obey the government. Period. End of discussion. No. All of the obedience and the submission in Scripture is relativized by obedience to Jesus. We, at no point do we have to obey a tyrant. We do not have to submit to unjust or evil or wicked or deceptive laws. We don't have to. We might strategically, for a season, if it does not violate our conscience, but we don't have to. This whole throwing out Romans 13 so that we therefore have to do anything and everything the government you know, mandates, is, it's sophistry. It's childish thinking. It's just, um, it's just pulling out one little tidbit of propaganda to sucker a bunch of simple Christians. No. Romans 13, just like Ephesians 6, where it says to submit to fathers, and just like um, the book of Hebrews, where it says to submit to the leaders over you within the church, are all relativized by if they're doing what is just, if they are following King Jesus. Make sense? Amen. So that, that's not complicated. That's not hard. I don't know why that's so hard out there in the internet world. A just war is also winnable. Amen? We're not called to suicide missions. We're not called to, you know, engage in war for our ego and for our honor, to charge into, uh, you know, a line of open fire. No, God does not want us to engage in kamikazes. Amen? The passages you can look up for illustration are Luke 14, 31, 1 Samuel 30, verse 8. Human life is too precious for that. A just war as well has peaceful objectives. The goal should not be to capture as many oil fields as possible or to um, prop up the uh, military-industrial complex. The goal is not to solidify the profits of our um, uh, Wall Street markets. I don't know if any of this happens. I hear things, right? I hear that the motives for our wars are suspect. I'm sure you could all imagine our wars being suspect, right? We're murdering millions of babies every year. I, I doubt our wars are just. Okay, we, we, our credibility is long gone. But I don't know enough information to say with certainty the purposes or the intentions that presidents have for engaging in war. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know why they're not asking Congress to engage in these wars. Why not listening to the voice of the people? I don't know. I don't know enough to know their true intentions. But one thing I do know is that the intentions, if it's going to be a just war, is for the purpose of peace. Not for the purpose of propping up the industrial military complex. Not to um, make some uh, fellow billionaires that you know across the world rich for the sale of um, AK-47s or whatever. I don't know. But one thing I know is war has to be for the purpose of peace, safety, and stability. Just as the kingdom of God advances for what purpose? that swords might be beat into plows. So too must all earthly kingdoms in submission to Christ engage in any sort of violence or war for the purpose of peace, stability. Criminals are executed ultimately for justice, 
for the justice of, um, of shedding of blood, but also that there might be peace and stability in the land. Same thing with wars across nation, national borders. We overcome evil with good. And uh, 1 Chronicles 28, verse 3, and Isaiah 2, 4 are great passages for that. <clears throat> and I think this may or may not be the last one, but a just war is proportionate. What are some Bible passages? Can you think of any in Scripture that teach proportionate response? Yeah, I think that's a good one. That's a good one. You ever heard the passage, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? See, Gandhi said that if we did an eye for an eye, then the whole world would be blind. But Gandhi doesn't know the point. He misses the actual point of that text. The point of the text isn't to execute perfect retribution across the board. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is to not go overboard with justice. It's a, it's a verse for the civil authorities to, because back then the, the problem wasn't they were letting people off. Back then the problem was, was, wasn't antinomianism or lawlessness like we have today, like blaming all of the crimes on mental instability or you didn't have parents or you had parents or you had gender dysphoria or systemic structures. You're not actually a criminal. Other people did it to you, right? That's our world today. But back then you, were, you got caught stealing well, you don't have hands anymore. Like, that's not proportionate, right? <laughs> um, in, in the Code of Hammurabi, and kids, correct me if I'm wrong, if you broke into a house, wherever you broke in, they would repair that wall with you inside of it. Right? They would put you in the wall and put the bricks around you. That was your punishment. That's not proportionate. You understand? The Bible comes along right around the same time period, and it is making innovations in justice and innovations in, in uh, political policy. I mean, the Bible had, has laws and civil codes that were unlike anything in the ancient world. The Bible even says that when the other nations would see the laws that God enacted, they would marvel and say, who is this great nation and whose great God is this that they have such wonderful and wise and just laws? And one of those is... It's an eye for an eye, not a life for an eye. You see the point? Proportionate response. A judge, one of the things a judge is supposed to do is make sure the sentence is proportionate to the crime. Now, our, our policies and our laws and our civil codes very often do not do that. They drop the hammer on people for minor offenses. Much of our, our problems with our prison system is that people for minor drug offenses are locked away for decades, their lives ruined, where they stay in there and they're discipled by true professional criminals. And, and honestly, they're, they're, they're made worse. Society is made worse. We, we must have a proportionate response, not a political response. We don't respond to someone. Uh, a kid put a meme out not that long ago about Hillary Clinton making fun of her. I mean, she had him investigated and arrested, and he's, he's being held on trial for domestic terrorism. This is disproportionate. This is bullying and intimidation. I mean, you could, we could go all day for the disproportionate responses of our government on, the, on minor offenses. All right. But just war is proportionate. Same thing, honestly, in, in, um, when you're spanking, for example, engaging in violence for the purpose of child um, discipline. And I'm using the word violence so you get the point. Um, it is. A, it's a type of violence. You're swinging a, a, a rod 
or a paddle or a belt to inflict pain, right? In the, wor- the world is against that. You all know, right? The world, you only get to get beaten by cops, right? Only cops get to beat people in the world. Um, but in the Christian religion, parents proportionately spank justly for the biblically lined out causes, limiting it, knowing the weakness of the child, right? Knowing the weakness of the flesh and doing so in a limited capacity so that he doesn't have to be beaten by the police, right? So that's in, 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 but one of the principles of that is when you spank, it has to be proportionate. Like depending on what they do, there should be a proportionate response, Parents that leave uh, whelps and bruises and go freak out insane over uh, minor childish things that come from the weakness of the flesh rather than the unwillingness of the spirit, that's abuse. That's ungodly. It's against Christ. Right? It has to be a, a proportionate. If your son punches your daughter, you're going to need a high level of pain threshold. That's going to be a big response. Right? That's, a, that's probably one of the worst things that could happen in a family, is for the son to like punch the, his sister, punch her sister in the face. Well, son, you're about to get a lot of licks, right? <laughs> but spilling your milk should not require any retribution. That's an accident, right? That's not a sin. Only disobedience and disrespect, sins according to Jesus, receive punishment, receive spanking. And that is to be done proportionate to what has taken place. Amen? And and fortunately, as a parent, you know them. You're supposed to use wisdom to discern that. Same thing with just war. It has to be proportionate. The violence must be proportional to the injury suffered. Thieves are not to be executed, Exodus 22.7. Families are not to be punished for one member's crimes, Deuteronomy 24.16. It's one eye for one eye, not a life for an eye, not a life for a tooth. You get, you get punched, tooth comes out, the crime and the punishment needs to be about one tooth level. <laughs> and then, of course, the Bible says in the same vein, the Bible completely prohibits total war. God engaged in total war uh, for total retribution. And God will engage in total war at the end of time. Um, but when a state thinks of itself as God, it then begins to engage in total war. Say what is total? It's um, in uh, Deuteronomy twenty verse nineteen and twenty. It refers to killing all the children, chopping down the fruit trees, sowing salt on the fields, you know, blowing up the dams, ruining their entire culture, customs, totally and utterly obliterating them. Uh, genocide, infanticide. Um, uh, Sherman's march to the sea is a perfect example. the the um, The United States has been dealing with statism for a long time. And one of the evidences of statism back then is General Sherman came through the South and over a massive swath, he burned, raped, and pillaged, and, and like completely engaged in total war all the way through a big swath of the South, which is one of the reasons why you have so much destitution and poverty in those regions. Um, so much of the capital and everything was completely obliterated. So that's total war. Atom bomb is total war, like just completely obliterating everything. And, you know, and I'm, I don't, the atom bomb total war was in response to a suicide war. So we're dealing with some hard ethical issues right there. You don't engage in suicide war and you don't engage in total war. 
Just war, of course, exempts civilians. Jeremiah 51.3, against him that bendeth, let the archer bend his bow. And against him that lifts himself up in his armor. You see that? So that's one particular passage. We can infer this principle from many passages. But war is not to be total, and it's not to be um, against civilians. You're not supposed to be massacring grandmas and grandpas and children and wives. This is a uniformed battle. That's why the Geneva Convention and other military codes say that you have to be wearing a uniform. Your uniform has to be distinguished. They, all of these various codes of ethics to govern the war are flowing from the Bible, flowing from Christendom in the past. And our nation, as our nation throws off Jesus and throws off the Bible, you're going to see more um, unjust warfare, more um, you know, disproportionate evil um, warfare. I think you're already seeing it. All right. Amen. Well, I, you know, an odd topic. Have you ever had a class on that in, in church? And the reason I, why I do it is because the next time it's time to vote for a governor or a president, I don't want to see Christchurch having stupid Facebook squabbles, two stupid people talking about things stupidly. Right. <laughs> We want to see equipped Christians who are wise and knowledgeable, who are every issue voters, laying out biblical reasons why this candidate is manifestly evil. This party is manifestly evil. Consider these Bible passages, right? Not um, <coughs> a bunch of emotional emoting, right? Not a uh, you know, not people who make arguments with worldly terms. Right? Taking terms from the Bible, taking terms from the world that have their own worldly definitions and using those to cast judgment or make decisions. We want to take Bible terms, Bible categories for all of life, and that's how we come to our conclusions as to what is good and what is bad and what we should support and what we should not support. Amen? I think if we all um, find our foundation in the scripture, we can have unity around that. That's what we need to pursue. Amen. All right. Y'all have a great Lord's Day.